0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Titus. Tonight I'm going to be preaching Titus two thirteen to 14, although I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, Paul's epistle to Titus, beginning at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Oh, I'm going to read one more verse. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the occasion tonight that brings us here, the occasion of our evening worship service. What a joy it is to gather together at the close of the Lord's day to give you praise. But Father, we're also grateful tonight for the ordination of men to the holy office of deacon. And so, Father, as we turn to your word, Lord, let us particularly have in mind the great privilege we have of serving in so great a cause as our returning Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, depicts two men who are waiting by a tree for a man whom neither of them knows. And over several nights, the men converse about the unseen Godot still waiting. Finally, a boy arrives with a message from Godot that he cannot come tonight, but he will appear the next night. And yet Godot does not appear the next night. In fact, he never appears. And the play ends with the two men having waited without any purpose and debating at the very end different methods of committing suicide. Now that play is celebrated as an absurd, revealing of what modern life is about, the secular world. It was deemed the most significant English language play of the 20th century. Now, writing to encourage his protege Titus in ministry, the apostle Paul considers the Christian life also to involve the experience of waiting. And yet the comparison with Godot's, with Becketts waiting for Godot ends there. While Beckett's characters exist in a meaningless world, Paul assured his readers that they live between two great events that in fact give ultimate meaning to all of their struggles. And exhorting the church towards godly living, Paul points out that believers live between the two appearings. In verse 11, he spoke of the first coming of Jesus as the grace of God which has appeared. And then in Titus 2.13, he adds, there is another appearing that equally shapes our outlook, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ's first coming, God's grace appeared with the gospel offer of salvation that continues to be proclaimed in our own time. The second coming will reveal the full, full glory of God in the return, the returning appearing of Jesus. Like the characters in Waiting for Godot, Christians do not know when our Savior is appearing, but unlike them, we can rely on his faithfulness. Therefore, our waiting takes the form of readiness for his appearing, with the result that in the present life, Christ's people, verse 14 says, are zealous for good works. Well, first, I want to consider this under three points. The first is that we are given a plan to embrace. God has a plan that shapes our whole attitude as we embrace it. In 1923, a large number of liberal Presbyterians signed what was called the Auburn Affirmation. And one of the things things that they insisted on in that declaration was that the visible bodily return of Jesus is merely a theory that ministers need not embrace. And in reaction to that unbelief, the fundamentalist movement of the 20th century placed a great emphasis on the second coming of the Lord Jesus so that hope in the return of Jesus was seen, correctly I would point out, as an essential point of component of saving faith. In recent years, however, I find that interest in Christ's return has yet again waned, not been denied among evangelicals, but the, the gravity of that on our thinking has waned. Even worse for some Christians, uh, the second coming has become a threat to scare youths into obedience. And then those young Christians, they learn to fear that Jesus might return because they've been threatened that he's going to reject them because they're imperfect Christians when he returns. Well, those tormented by that thought dread the idea that Jesus might return. It's a source of fear instead of what Paul calls it, our blessed hope. Well, in contrast to an attitude of ambivalence or anxiety, Paul insists that Christ's future appearing should loom large in our minds and our hearts, and moreover, far from it being a source of anxiety and dread. And Paul describes the return of our Lord as our blessed hope. Cornelius Venema writes, The event of Christ's return then is the great centerpiece of biblical expectation for the future. It will signal the inauguration of God's eternal kingdom and the full and final redemption of all of his people. Now, Paul describes the return of Jesus as a summation of all of our longing. And it's for this reason, because of our blessed hope, it is the fulfillment of all that we have been seeking through faith in Christ. The return of Jesus will see the final resurrection. Yes, that will be the resurrection of our bodies of those who have who have died. And the saints of the souls of saints above will be rejoined to in those glorified bodies. Those who have not died will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, uh, a resurrection body like the body of Jesus after his resurrection. What a thing that will be. And Christ's return brings the final judgment at which those whose sins have been forgiven by Jesus uh, will joyfully anticipate that benediction. I hope that you anticipate. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, the desire to hear that should move us. Well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25:21. You see, the second coming leads not merely to another phase of conflict between faith and unbelief on earth, but rather it is the end of all strife. So that as Isaiah anticipated, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." Isaiah 11:9. Now in order to stoke our anticipation, Paul refers to the second coming, in verse 13, as the appearing of the glory, the appearing of the glory. Now, Jesus has always been in himself glorious, fully glorious. That's why the angel choir greeted his incarnate birth with songs of heavenly praise. At this very moment, our Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. All authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth, and the angels are crying out in his presence blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.13 and yet that glory is not presently evident in the world where we live. Not only is Jesus neglected by the unbelieving world, but believers themselves, we grow weary of living by faith and not by sight. Nothing wrong with, with longing for the day when we no longer live by faith. We will see him as he is, as John the Apostle said, We are like Moses and Aaron during the Exodus when beset by rebellion and malice, they were in danger for their lives. But then suddenly the Shekinah glory cloud descended on the tabernacle. Number 1642, the glory of the Lord appeared and God's cause was vindicated. According to the Bible, something greater than that will occur when Jesus returns. The glory of his coming will be seen by every eye. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Venema summarizes, the return of Christ will be an event at the close of this present age in which the present splendor, honor, and authority that belong to the risen and ascended Lord will be visible personally and publicly displayed as his being is revealed from heaven. Now remember that in, in the book of Titus, is Paul is confronting the worldliness that has grown in the Crecian church. And in chapter 1, he identified insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers who were troubling the church and who with others in their ungodliness. He said in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And so starting in verse 11, I began reading there, he urged that in Christ's first coming, the grace of God appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. By the way, uh, grace is not opposed to obedience and godliness. No, it is grace that enables, that, that mandates, that resources and requires us to begin living more and more godly lives. And now he adds that the glory of God will appear in the return of Jesus, though Christians are surrounded by unbelief and sin together with the oppression that is directed towards our faith, we're to realize and we're to embrace where we are in God's plan. We have a plan to embrace. That plan sees us between the first and second coming of our Lord. Spurgeon writes, we are compassed about behind and before with the appearings of our Lord Jesus. Behind us is our trust. Before us is our hope behind us is the Son of God in humiliation, before us is our great God and Savior in his glory. Now what a motivation this provides for holy living, to know and embrace God's plan in the coming of Christ's glory. No longer will the splendor of the world so entice us as it is prone to do, is it not? But if we think this way, we will not be so enticed that we forget about what most importantly matters, that kingdom that is higher above all others. We will no longer be enticed. We will be waiting eagerly for the appearing of Jesus. John Calvin I said, Christ, by his coming, will chase away all the empty show of the world. no No longer shall the world obscure the brightness, no longer lessen the magnificence of his glory. We are waiting for our blessed hope, knowing what truly is now and what is soon to come, and we live for the reign of the King who will come. If we embrace this plan, we will live for him. We will know he is coming. We will live for the king and for his kingdom. We will live now in the resources of the grace that appeared when Jesus first came. And we will live in the hope of the glory that soon will be revealed. We have a plan to embrace. But secondly, we have a person to meet. We have a person to meet. As Paul's unveiling his biblical eschatology, he directs us not only to this plan, but to the person of Christ himself, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, this statement declares that while Christians suffer in weakness, often despised by a world that scoffs at our our faith, our future holds a glorious meeting with a Savior who is no less than God in the person of his Son. Ever since the Trinitarian controversies of the early church, faithful readers of Scripture have seen Titus 2.14 as a declaration, its proof and a declaration of the full deity of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Now, we must always remember that the deity of Christ does not rely on any single verse in the Bible, not this one, not any other single verse. It's important because opponents of Christ will target the, the, the great verses. This is one of them. And we'll, we'll make clever arguments seeking to derail us. Uh, we, we don't believe that Jesus is fully God merely because of this book. Uh, we remember that the Bible declares the deity of Jesus throughout the New Testament. Uh, Christians believe Jesus is the second person of the eternal trinity, not because we can answer every clever objection to every key verse but because the Scriptures overwhelmingly assign deity to Jesus. Cain Griffin puts it this way, the fact of Jesus' deity is established by his supernatural birth, by his sinless life, by his fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy, by his demonstrated authority over nature, disease, demons, and death, by his claim upon the attributes and prerogatives of God, including forgiving sins and judging sinners. And by his resurrection from the dead and his heavenly exaltation. We should know that the teaching of Jesus' deity hardly relies on any single verse. And yet what an important statement we have when Titus 2.14 refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the question is raised as to whether this statement is referring to a single person, our Lord Jesus, who is both our great God and our Savior, or whether he's referring to the Father and then the Son, in which case we would read the appearing of the glory of the great God and also of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the great majority of believing scholars take the first view. First view, going back to the early church fathers. Although some have taken, some evangelical scholars actually take the second view, it's worth spending just a little bit of time making clear what Paul means. I want to give you four reasons why there is no doubt whatsoever that Paul is writing of Jesus and he is both the great God and our Savior. He's not in this verse referring to God the Father as our great God and then also God the Son. No, Jesus is our great God and our Savior. Now, the first reason is that there is only one definite article that serves for both nouns. Instead of writing the great God and the Savior, Paul employs the article the, that's the, direct art, the definite article, Uh, The only once for both nouns, the great God and Savior. Now, biblical Greek does permit a single definite article to serve for two conjoined persons, but that is not ordinarily the case. So on natural reading, we'll see one person here who is both God and Savior. That's one reason. Now, second, this expression is used in the context of the appearing and it's no question at all that the appearing, appearing referred to here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet scripture never says that the Father visibly, visibly appears together with the Son. Uh, appearing is only used in the context of the second coming with reference to Christ himself. It is Christ alone who appears in the second coming, and he is our great, the great God and our Savior. Now, third, scholars note that the expression God and Savior was a frequently used set phrase in the time of the apostles. It was actually often made of the Roman emperor. There are scriptures, uh, inscriptions calling the Roman emperor, the great God and Savior, but it's referring to one person. And all of those are subscriptions, and, and there's no doubt there's a bit of a polemic here. Caesar is not the great God and Savior. Jesus is the great God and Savior. But in all that use of that expression by the Romans, it refers to one person, not two different people. Secondly, and finally, in verse 14, we can see that Paul intends to set forth the deity of Jesus by ascribing to him the activities that belong to God. He redeems his people from sin. He purifies a people for his own possession armed with that rationale, there is no reasonable question, I think, as to Paul's meaning. Christians look forward to their blessed hope in a future, just think about this, in our future, this is our future history, in our future meeting with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he returns with the age, we have a meeting with him. I mentioned that Christians have sadly been taught to dread the return of Jesus as if we had something to fear from him who died for us. But notice that Paul adds that the one who comes in glory on that last day is our Savior who gave himself for us, verse 14. And so the attitude of Jesus toward those who await his return is well established by the track record of his ministry and his life and his first coming. In all that Jesus did in his first appearing, he gave himself for the blessing of his people. He shared our sorrows and our misery. He alleviated the pains of disease and possession. He he spoke words of instruction and encouragement. He ultimately laid down his life as the good shepherd who loves his sheep. My friends, that Savior, that great God and Savior whom you will meet, we will meet, is the God who loves you and who sealed that love in the offering of his own blood that you would be saved. When he comes again for us to meet him, he will consummate the fullness of our blessing. He will speak those blessed words of Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Robert Yarborough comments, all that Titus may have endured by way of hardship and deprivation It will all be forgotten in the magnificence of what that day will reveal. And the same is true for you and for me. We know in advance that Jesus will come. We know that we will meet him. There's a person we will meet, our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus, who loves us. We will see him in his glory. We will receive his blessing. You see, then we can live now along the lines of Paul's personal credo. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to be ordaining deacons tonight. And these are men who are busy men who have day jobs and who have vocations and skills. What they do outside the church is important. And I know that one of the reasons they're offering their services to the church in such a meaningful way They know the plan that they've embraced, and they're looking forward to that person, the Lord Jesus, they're going to meet him. Uh, They say with the apostle, I want to live by faith in him. He loved me. He gave himself for me. I want to give myself for him. Well, thirdly, there's a purpose to fulfill. There's a plan to embrace, there's a person to meet, and there's a purpose to fulfill. Paul writes as this soaring eschatology, he answers many questions that people have about the second coming of Jesus, but his primary aim is actually very practical. He argues that by anticipating our blessed hope, we will trust God's plan, and we will think about the glorious person we're going to be meet, we're going to meet. And when we think in that way, all the present difficulties will become light. He concludes by noting that being bound up in Jesus' saving mission is then that a purpose is communicated to us. I I like to say that to be a a follower of Jesus and to be purposeless is an oxymoron. We live in a generation. People have no meaning. They have great abundance. They have great ease, but no purpose to life. It's an epidemic. And we understand what a burden that would be. No Christian should ever say, "I, I don't have a sense of purpose. No, a purpose is given to us to be fulfilled in our lives. It's in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Christian lives between the two appearings, looking forward to our meeting with him in his glory. We live with a purpose. That purpose animates us even now. When Paul explains what it means for Jesus to be our Savior, he gives the summary He gave Himself for us. And while Jesus gave Himself in the whole of His ministry, that expression primarily refers to His sacrificial death on our behalf on the cross. And so we hear in Paul an echo of Jesus' claim when He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here we then see the purpose of our Lord and his coming. He came to redeem us. Now, that expression comes from the marketplace. It implies the purchasing of slaves from bondage, purchasing back of slaves, or the release of criminals from condemnation. Redemption takes place by a payment or a ransom. Jesus died with a redemptive purpose that we might be set free, verse 14, from all lawlessness. You see, we not only were under the penalty of sin, but we were also in the power of sin. And so the purpose of his redemption is that by his blood, we would be set free to live for God in holiness. It's for this reason that our faith in Jesus grants us not only the benefit of Christ's atoning blood, but also the indwelling Holy Spirit. I love those words of Charles Wesley in "O 4 A Thousand Tongues to Sing. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. If you are a Christian, you've been set free from bondage to sin. Oh, You still struggle with sin, but you're not a slave to sin anymore. And you've been set free that you would live a new life increasingly in accordance with God's will by the resources of his grace, by prayer, and by the word of God. But Jesus has a purpose not only for us in his coming, but He also a purpose for himself. He wants to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see, believers are the people of God. We are the bride of Christ. We are redeemed to a suitable to be a suitable companion to the Holy Son of God. Just as a bride will prepare for her wedding by making herself as beautiful as possible, I enjoy doing weddings, and my experience is that when that bride comes down the aisle, whatever her maximum beauty potential is, it's about to be achieved at that moment. They've, usually the, the wedding's at 2 p.m., I'll say to the bridal party, What time are you arriving? Four in the morning. <laughs> She's going to make herself absolutely as beautiful. Why? Because she's giving herself to her groom. And that's a biblical picture given to us, that we're to anticipate the coming of our Lord and a meeting for him, not in fear and dread, but with a delight and a desire to present ourselves spiritually beautiful unto him when he comes, to rid ourselves of sin's contagion now, And to do so by the coming of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel foretold, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the Christian hears that and says, that's the very thing I want. That's not me losing out. That's me offering something beautiful in in, through my life to that one who loves my soul. Those who believe have experienced a new birth with a new and holy ability placed within us. Not only should we no longer continue in the ways of sin, we need not. We not only should not go on living as we did, we need not. We have been born again. The power of the Holy Spirit is in our minds. We have a new nature. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit working within us by the word and with prayer and the sacraments. And yes, that's an ongoing process, an ongoing struggle in this present life. But Christians here are told that, that your struggle against sin, your, your labor for sanctification, is certain of success, of even perfection, the goal will be attained when Jesus returns. He will complete the process. He will present us spotless in himself. What does John say in 1 John 3? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And then the reflection he gives, almost as an afterthought, but a necessary one. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And so Christians, we have a sense of purpose in the knowledge of our holy destiny, granted by grace and to be finished by the coming of our Lord. And we humbly rejoice that that, that I should be a person for his possession, that we should be a people to be his treasure. That's That's what's being said there. Spurgeon writes, Believers are Christ's own people, his choice and select portion. The saints are Christ's crown jewels, his box of diamonds, his very, very, very own. He carries his people as lambs in his bosom. He engraves their names on his heart. They are his inheritance to which he is the heir, and he values them more than all the universe beside And so this means that Christians have the thrill, not only of knowing our destiny in Christ, that it's one of spotless holiness, but also to learn that the longing for which he came and gave himself was so that we might be his forever, that we might be close to him, that we might rejoice in him and he in us. Wesley said, his blood can make the phallus clean, his blood availed for me. Oh, how much more will his second coming so here we live in the light of the grace that has come, the first appearing of the Lord in his grace, with the blessed hope of his appearing that soon will come in glory. And my friends, we have every reason not to live for this present evil age, but for the coming king and its Lord, the kingdom of Christ and our Savior. Paul reminds us we have a plan to embrace, a person to meet, A person, a purpose to fulfill, the sum of which expands beyond all desire. And so Paul says that this, he concludes this way that we therefore are zealous for good works. Well, I know that this is what's animated. I hope it gives biblical shape to those men who are about to commit themselves to a pretty major sacrifice of time and energy and passion and spirit and zeal for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what a blessed thing it is that we would be zealous together for the work of Christ in and through his church. Uh, The word zealous indicates we're not merely to be interested in doing good, but we're to be fervent in it with a great passion. The work that we've joined together, it's not just the officers, it's all the members. But tonight we're ordaining the deacons, and so we we think particularly of them. We're to be filled with a zeal for for that work assigned to us in the kingdom of Christ, one local church, but, but of such importance in the place and the time where it exists. Christ's people are to be on fire for the work of his kingdom. We're to be inflamed with the consecration of all things to his praise. We're to have a passion for our own growth in godliness, but then for that gospel work that offers salvation to a world trapped and without meaning. What a thing it is that Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot depicts the philosophy of the world in which we live. I think it actually does. Meaningless, pointlessness, emptiness. Christians are to enter into that dire scene with a message of hope, We break into the world with lies that display a grace unknown to those outside of Christ and a message of healing, forgiving, redeeming, and cleansing so that others who will join us in waiting for the appearing of the great glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, let uh, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us your plan. What a plan it is. All that your son did, redeeming us from the guilt and power of sin in his first coming. But, Father, that we are to await his coming. We're to know that he's coming. We're to pray for his coming. Come, Lord Jesus, and knowing that he says, surely I am coming soon. Uh, Father, then let us embrace a purpose for our lives. It's going to be a little different in many of our cases, Lord. But, Father, let each of us say, I want to live for that one kingdom that will endure forever. Cause us to realize that all the causes, all the things in this world, many of them good in and of themselves for which we labor, but they will all pass. They will all pass. But the work of your Son, that saving work of Jesus, the the church that is so precious to Him, will endure forever. We thank you for the pleasure of having the purpose of offering our lives in service to Christ and his church. We pray that in his name, amen.